Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Midtown Atlanta, it's time for Top Docs Radio, brought to you by Medical Association of Georgia. With over 7,800 physician members, MAG is pleased to advocate on behalf of Georgia's patients and physicians. Visit mag.org and on Twitter at mag1849. Join the conversation on Twitter at Top Docs on BRX. Hey, what's up, everyone? It is C.W. Hall, your host here on the Top Docs Radio Show. Thanks for making us a part of your day today. We appreciate you being here. It is our ongoing series with the Medical Association of Georgia. And today we're going to be taking a look at depression. I'm pleased to have with me in the studio from Emory University, Dr. Mark Rappaport. He is the Reunet W. Harris Professor and Chairman of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Emory University School of Medicine and the Chief of Psychiatric Services at Emory Healthcare. He's received peer-reviewed grant funding from a number of institutions and his research interests are focused on psychopharmacology and he's investigated the biologigenesis of anxiety disorders, bipolar and depression, immunity, abnormalities, and schizophrenia, and a number of other things. Thanks for taking some time. Clearly, somebody that's probably going to be able to speak pretty effectively about depression and what that means for us. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me here, and and thanks to Mac. Well, before we get too deep into talking about depression in particular, take us through your own background. How did you travel the path that you got to uh, to take to where you are here, sitting at the top of the the behavioral medicine department within the the medical center here at Emory? Well, medicine's been in my family for a long time. Both my grandparents were physicians and my dad was a physician as well as an uncle. And I grew up in the West Coast actually and lived most of my life here, uh, well, excuse me, in the West Coast, except for four years at the NIH. But then this opportunity arose, the opportunity to come to Emory And Emory is one of the most amazing places when it comes to biomedical research. You know, I've been in many, many different places. I worked at the NIH. I worked at UC San Diego. I worked at UCLA. I worked at Cedars-Sinai. But I've never been at an organization that was so collaborative, where you could get neurology, psychiatry, neurosurgery, psychology, all working together on problems and all trying to solve really important big problems together. That's what attracted me to come to Emory, where I've been for the last five years. Now, are you saying when you talk about that multi-specialty approach and some collaboration between departments, are you talking about having experts from each of those sitting down and actually tackling some of healthcare issues, some of them behavioral and others from their own unique perspective, such that you can develop, I guess, a plan of care that encompasses all necessary resources to the benefit of the patient. Is that what we're talking about? Well, you summarized it really nicely, but we go beyond that. We not only do that, but we're doing that in terms of training our, the next generation of leaders. We're doing it in terms of our research. In fact, we have a, a brain health center at Emory now. My office is next to the chair of neurology. It's next to the chair of rehab. And we've got neurosurgery in there as well. We've got two MRI machines and repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation and neuropsychologists. And we're all working together to tackle the big brain disorders, whether it's depression or Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease. We're all working on that together now. Well, talk a little bit about depression. Let's go ahead and take a look at it. I know that obviously pretty much everybody has heard us 
use the word depression, but I think that there probably is a measure of confusion out there, both in the, in the lay population, but even probably on some level, even within uh, healthcare experts as well, when they're not dealing with these issues every day, between what is the blues, you know, I've been really kind of feeling down, I'm feeling some stress and, and I'm not as, as chummy as I usually am, to what is truly depression, where the individual may even possibly need some sort of medical management in addition to maybe some professional discussion, if you will, to, to guide them through that situation? Well, you know, that's an important question. And depression is actually one of the most prevalent brain diseases there is. It affects at any one time in somebody's life about 15% of people. When we're talking about depression, we're talking about a biological illness where people have changes in their sleep. Most people have very disrupted sleep when they're depressed. You have changes in the app, your appetite. The majority of them have a decrease in appetite, but some people actually have an increase. You have changes in the ability to concentrate and think, and you feel raw inside. Your emotions are right on your sleeve, and small things set you off in a way that they wouldn't normally. Other parts of depression include the fact that you don't get pleasure out of stuff you normally would. So if your child did well on a test, instead of feeling good about it, you just sort of feel blah. You win a prize at work. Instead of really appreciating it, you just said, oh, fine, so what? And it's as if you're looking through the world all the time wearing sunglasses. Everything is darker. Nothing is as positive, and you feel sad for no reason at all. It's a really serious disorder. And the saddest thing about it is that people many times think that, oh, I'm just going to get over it. It's, um, I'm just not being strong enough. It's just not uh, me being a tough guy. And that's not it at all. It's biological. Now, our, we have, the cool thing is we have lots and lots of, of wonderful treatments. Everything from evidence-based talk therapies to medications to using repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation to ketamine infusions to ECT to deep brain stimulation to immunotherapies. We have so many options available now that we didn't have in the past. And we've really begun to learn the biology of, of depression. We're beginning to take the syndrome, just the way high blood pressure or diabetes or cancers are, are syndromes with lots of, lots of different disorders causing it. We've begun to, to tease apart depression as well. And we're beginning to figure out what forms of depression might respond better to psychotherapy, which ones respond better to medicines, what forms of depression might be linked to inflammation. It's really a very, very exciting time when we look at treatments and understanding of depression. A rate of 15%, if you look at the Atlanta metro area, I mean, you're, you're approaching a million people when you're talking about that kind of frequency. And with it being so common to affect us on some level uh, one in six of us, uh, we all know somebody, I can guarantee you with those statistics, we all know somebody if we're not that person ourselves. So with that being the case, I mean, how come there's not much more, more conversation about it? You're talking about the fact that uh, now there are a number of options and ways of, of going about it 
some, you know, more involved and, and more intense than others. But it seems that there's there's apparently a gap in terms of the number of folks out there that that are dealing with this. You're calling it a, a brain disease that apparently aren't getting access or accessing themselves to care that might help them pull out of that. Is that it, if we're calling it a brain disease? So does that mean then that it's something that I have now now that's with me, or that I can actually like illnesses that resolve themselves with some therapy that can actually cure it? Well. Now you've asked me about five great questions. Okay. So let I'm me so start curious. with one. <laughs> um, if depression's so common, how come we don't hear more about it? Yeah. Well, part of the, the issue is the brain is the most complex and the most difficult to study organ that we have in the body. And so back in the 30s and 40s and 50s, 60s, 70s, while we were making tremendous advances in other diseases of the body, you know, because you could uh, listen to the heart, you could take blood samples and urine samples. It's real hard to take brain samples. Right. But with the advent of, of new brain imaging techniques, yeah. with the advent of new molecular biology techniques, we've been able to really begin to figure out what's going on in the brain. So what happened was there was this tremendous stigma there was this idea, the brain's this big, complicated organ, but we didn't know what was in it. We didn't know how it functioned. We didn't know uh, what was really going on there at all. And so what happened is that we sort of shunted people away. In fact, if you remember, um, back in the 30s and 40s and 50s and into the 60s, um, there were big asylums where literally hundreds, and in certain cases, over a thousand people were warehoused with brain diseases. They were being shunted away, kept away from everyone else. There was almost a, a scarlet letter if you admitted that, that somebody in your family or you might have a, a brain disease. Gosh, remember what happened to Tom Eagleton? You know, here he was nominated to be vice president of the, you know, on the Democratic ticket. And once they found out oh, he'd had depression, he'd had ECT, all of a sudden he was off the ticket. So there's been this tremendous fear and this tremendous shame and stigma associated with brain diseases. But now that we're beginning to understand the biology of it, now that we're beginning to actually know that the brain is, is really um, not only responsible for our thoughts and feelings and memories, brain's actually responsible for what's going on in the rest of your body as well. Mm -hmm. it, it's controlling how you eat, it controls how you sleep, it controls um, your heart rate and your GI um, motility to a large extent, it controls a whole bunch of processes in your body. And conversely, we now know that your body's communicating with the brain all the time. So we're beginning to peel apart the stigma. We're beginning to, to break down those sort of barriers and fears that have kept people from getting treatment. But that's why I'm, I'm really adamant about us calling depression a brain disease, not a character flaw or weakness. It's not something that if you just buck up, you're going to get over it. Mm -hmm. 
When it comes to talking about depression in that context, thinking about it as a as a, a disease, in many cases, diseases are brought on by some sort of precipitating factor, whether it's a, a viral infection, a bacterial infection, a traumatic injury, whether that in this case, I presume some of those traumatic injuries might be emotional or, or situational that, that lead to maybe some feedback that, that caused this to start. But from when it comes to trying to determine, going back to the early part of our conversation, is this the blues or the depression? Mm-hmm. At what point, what's the, 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 where are we to begin to define those two as one or the other? And then do we find that there's, is it like a genetic predisposition that's coming into play where certain stressors that, that we encounter in the course of our lives lead us into that what I would, I guess, describe as maybe some sort of a feedback loop that just kind of continues and you don't necessarily break out of that troubled processing, if you will. Mm-hmm. Again, wonderful series of questions. Okay. So for starters, one of the things that we know about most diseases in our body, not all, but most, is that many times it's an interplay between genetics and genetic predispositions plus environmental factors. So we know, for example, that if you're exposed to early life trauma, so if you're a child and you've been sexually molested, if you've been traumatized, beaten repeatedly, if you're exposed to early life trauma, you're at much greater risk of depression, you're at much greater risk of developing obesity and diabetes. Early life events predispose people to a lot of bad diseases in adults. So it's the interplay between your genes and the expression of those genes and the events that occur in your life. Yes, frequently, but not all the time. Depression may be brought about by a a precipitous loss of a job or the death of a loved one. Mm -hmm. So there are certainly losses that are associated with triggering depression in some people. But there are other people where there is no trigger. So you can't really identify just as insidiously comes on and it's just kind of the the way it is. Well, it insidiously comes on, but boy, can we change it. Okay. And boy, can, can we intervene to help people with depression nowadays? Well, when it comes to that side of things, you talked about the wide range of therapies that are available. How do you differentiate? I mean, is it a stepwise approach? seeing titrating, if you will, the intensity of our, of our treatment to, to response? It is. At this point, as is the case with many things in medicine, we don't necessarily know right off the bat. Sometimes we do, but more times than not, what the best treatment would be. So part of it is an, a discussion with the patient. Does this patient want to try a psychotherapy, an evidence-based psychotherapy, or does this patient want to try a medication? It's sort of trying to figure out together what what it should the treatment should be. However, we know based on sort of a, the life history of an individual, it may sort of color which direction we go initially. The cool thing, though, is that we're beginning to find out that there may be biological markers that are can really guide what we do. So Dr. Helen Mayberg in our department at Emory and her colleagues were the first people to demonstrate that you could use a PET scan to begin to determine who would 
might respond better to psychotherapy and not to medicine and who might respond best to medicine and not to psychotherapy. And there are actual or metabolic changes in specific areas of the brain that is that are a clue to treatment response in a subset of people. Interesting. Yeah. So, so somebody with a particular issue within that spectrum of depression, you're saying, would illuminate the PET scan is one where you see an image, but it's sort of like the satellite display on the weather where there's, there's the black and white map and you see some boundaries and so forth, and then you see the colors of the storm. That's sort of what we're looking at here. You have an image of the brain where there's hot spots that are colorized based on activity. Is that That's correctly right. That, okay. that's, 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 that's exactly right and exactly what's going on. And what Dr. Mayberg and her colleagues have shown is that at least for some people with depression, using the PET scan, and it's still in the research phase. In fact, we're, we're doing the confirmatory large study right now. But for some people, we're able to discern, hey, this is going to be somebody who will do best with psychotherapy, and this person will do better with medication. Dr. Andy Miller, looking at people that don't succeed with initial treatment, has work showing that some of those people have increased peripheral inflammation. So they're bodies or um, act their immune systems activated and they have an inflammatory response going on. And Dr. Miller and his group has been able to show that one, that peripheral inflammation is changing your brain. It's causing a dissociation and function between the front part of your brain, the, the prefrontal cortex areas of the brain, which are really sort of the logical and reasoning areas of the brain, and a, an, an area of the brain associated with emotion. And what they've been able to show is that if you c- can decrease that inflammation, you can get that connectivity in the brain back together. That's very exciting new work that, that's coming out of our labs at Emory right now. And is that tied into what I've heard about uh, with regards to cortisol, uh, the, the hormone that can be released when you're under periods of stress or high periods of emotion that, that, that are prolonged, that you secrete the hormone uh, cortisol, cortisol that can have some of that inflammatory effects? Yeah, traditionally, cortisol actually has an anti-inflammatory effect. And what we find is that these people tend to be resistant to the okay, so anti-inflammatory uh, effects of cortisol. And so what happens is, yeah, you get an increased production of cortisol, but it's not turning off the, the immune system okay. the way it should. I got it. Yeah. And, you know, and what's really cool is remember where we started this conversation, all these people with the stigma and worried that they've got a character weakness or a character flaw and just aren't tough enough. And what are we talking about now? We're talking about cortisol. We're talking about immune function. Mm-hmm. We're talking about changes in structures in the brain. We're cha- changes in connectivity in the brain. And with that, we're going to be able to peel away some of the stigma. With that, we're going to be able to get more people here in Atlanta to get the treatment they need to get better. Well, we're here in the southeast, obviously, the breadbasket of meat and threes and, and, and uh, probably a couple of cigarettes here and there as well. So our population around Georgia is, is heavy with individuals either dealing with diabetes or getting ready to. 
same with heart disease, hypertension, all those things. And from what I understand that in those populations, you can see some higher risk and frequency of occurrence of depression is, is what's causing which? Yes. You know, I wish I could answer that <laughs> because that's the chicken and the egg question. Okay. And it's actually one we're studying. Yeah. Uh, Ricky Gillespie, another one of our researchers is working with people with diabetes, those with and without trauma and looking at um, the incidence of depression in those individuals and what's going on biologically with them. I have a large study right now, another pun, not intended, but um, <laughs> where we're looking at um, individuals with depression and obesity and increased inflammation. And we're looking to see if we can modify both the inflammation and the depression just with different doses of omega-3 fatty acids. Interesting. Yeah. And it would seem, based on what you were saying earlier, that as inflammation rises, then it begins to actually inhibit or interfere with the way that the brain is linking to the various centers from our, you know, our functional cognition from moment to moment, our decision maker, if you will, that makes me take care of myself and those types of things to the automated parts that that inflammation can get in the way and actually kind of keep me here. And so I can see where if you were able to interrupt that cycle of inflammation, then brain function, I guess, can then begin to straighten itself out somewhat. That's absolutely correct. And so that is one of the major areas of research that we do at Emory. And, and um, we're really one of the world's leaders in that area. Uh, but I want to get back to another question you asked a minute ago. Because you're quite correct, there's an increased prevalence of both mood and anxiety disorders in people that have had heart attacks, people that had strokes, people with high blood pressure and diabetes. And so there's a bi-directional interaction going on there between what's going on in the body and what's going on in the brain. It's very important for our physician colleagues to remember many times when somebody's coming in to see you with heart disease or with a stroke or with diabetes, should ask about depression or anxiety because it's, it's there much more commonly than you think. And what we also know is that it almost doubles the cost of treatment if you don't treat it. Mm. We're talking with Dr. Mark Rappaport. He's the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences and Rionette Harris Chair at the Emory University School of Medicine and chief of the psychiatric services. And when it comes to Dr. Rappaport to being one of those individuals, and it's probably since I've been really good at asking multiple questions in a, in a given <laughs> phrase, I'll, I'll pose this with two sides. When it comes to knowing somebody, I'm, I'm confronted with somebody, whether I think it might be me or maybe one of my loved ones, what do I do? But similarly, you were talking a little bit just a moment ago in a comment that made me make this a two-part, and that is for colleagues who are in the primary care office they're in a, or they're in a cardiology office, you talk about asking about depression. I would assume that there's probably some effective ways to ask questions that outside of, do you have depression? Uh, that would lead me to maybe create a, a better clinical picture rather than just a yes, no, do you have depression? Yeah, there are a variety of things one can do. One can ask questions or there actually are some really simple screening tools that are something called the PHQ-2, two questions that can be used um, in a doctor's office, filled out in the waiting room. And if those two questions are positive, and one is, do you feel sad and blue um, right. more times than not? 
And the other one is, um, do you not get pleasure out of things that you used to get pleasure out of? And if, if people are, are saying, yeah, consistently this is happening to me, then there's a really good probability that that person might have a mood disorder and, and probably um, deserves a more thorough screening. And again, there's something called the PHQ-9, which is that more thorough screening. Again, it could, it's easy to use. It could be used in a, by a nurse. It could be used in the self-report filled out in the waiting room. And you would have a good sense of whether or not there's a high likelihood of that person suffering from depression. When you look around the, the medical community, I mean, how well are we doing in that regard in terms of trying to effectively assess that component of our patient when they're in front of us? Maybe that's not my thing I'm focused on. I'm focused sure. on your kidneys. But you know what I'm saying? Being yeah. able to take advantage of that interface. You know, I think we're getting better. We're certainly not there yet, but we certainly are getting better. And certain health systems actually require screening like that. So, for example, if, if you're in the VA system, all of our veterans are screened. They're screened in primary care and everywhere else. Um, and more and more health systems are doing that because they're realizing um, how deadly these disorders are, how costly these disorders are, and the fact that um, many of our patients and their family members are suffering because of it. And when I'm one of those physicians, you, you talked about several ways that I can assess whether or not my patient may be dealing with depression. Similarly, if I'm at home, I'm a lay person, I'm not a healthcare provider and somebody that I'm, uh, I, I care about, I'm worried about that might be dealing with depression. I mean, what do I do from that perspective? If I'm not the healthcare provider, I'm the, mm -hmm. I'm the, either an individual thinks, geez, that may be me, or maybe that's my wife, whatever the case may be. How do, what should I do from the perspective of maybe trying to get them assessed? Sure. I think one of the first things to do is acknowledge it with that person. Acknowledge that they're, they're struggling and they're being brave and they're in a heck of a lot of pain. Hey, this is what I see going on, honey. Uh, um, am I right? It feels to me like you know, you're not getting pl pleasure out of stuff we used to have fun with. And it feels to me like, like, you know, you're working really hard just to get through the day. So the first is helping that person acknowledge what's going on and, and letting that person know that, A, you are seeing that happening. The next message is, you know, I've learned that, that there's help. You know, we can look together on the internet. You know, we can, we can, you know, look at the Mental Health Association website. We can, you know, look at some of the um, the NAMI website, the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill. We we can look together online, and there's lots of good material about depression and anxiety disorders online. It's a good place to start, and we're talking about um, something that's fixable. We can do this together. It, it's not your fault. That's a really important uh, message. When it comes to a physician assessing their patient as they're engaging with them from whatever specialty practice that they're dealing with their patients, if they find that person that they feel, you know, some of their responses would indicate maybe they are dealing with depression or I'm the, I'm the loved one that's, that's gotten somebody to, to seek out help. 
I mean, what then? I mean, is is this uh, once I once I do say okay, fine, I get out, evaluated, and they say yes, based on what we find here, it appears that you are dealing with depression. Uh, what's my course? I mean, is it's is this uh, is this like the, the certain viral infections that once you have it, now it's with you for the rest of your life, and you'll be you, you're you're a, a chronic illness patient, or is this a, a a finite syndrome, if you will, that if you get access to the right kind of care, you can actually treat it and cure it? The answer to your question is yes and no. Okay. So let's look at it this way. Out of that 900,000 people or so in, in the greater Atlanta area that are depressed, about 50% of them will have one episode of depression and will not have a recurrence of the disorder. However, the other 50% of people will have a disorder that either will wax and wane and might have several episodes of, or in about a third of the cases, those individuals will have a much, much more chronic, resistant to standard treatment course. And for those individuals, um, those are the ones that for sure need to be seen by a specialist. Those are the ones that... um, more likely than not, are going to need some type of uh, pattern of more chronic or consistent intervention in their lives. You know, and for different people, mean different things. Um, for some people, it might be a, a lifelong course of medication, just like they would do if they had diabetes or high blood pressure um, or kidney disease. For other people, it might be a focused psychotherapy. They get better, and then they might have a some refresher sessions a few times a year, and that's all it's going to be. So it'll depend on the individual. But the good news is, in almost all cases, we can make a difference and we can get people back towards normal functioning. I know that there is a group of persons out there that are dealing with what would be said treatment-resistant depression. Talk about that. What's that situation like and what options exist for those individuals? Sure. Um, That really is about one-third of the people with depression. So, you know, we could fill um, the Georgia Tome five times over with people with treatment-resistant depression. So it's pretty common. Mm -hmm. Um, And what happens is that these are individuals that don't respond um, to the uh, initial couple of treatment interventions that somebody's had, uh, whether it's uh, psychotherapy or whether it's medication or the combination, they just didn't respond to, to those in initial interventions. We believe that those individuals deserve a much more thorough and careful screening for a couple of reasons. One is, is frequently there's that history of trauma that needs to be addressed and dealt with in these people. And you need to be able to, to delve into that trauma some, to, to really help somebody get better there sometimes. Mm-hmm. Another reason why is um, frequently um, these are, are people that might have that inflammatory form of depression or, or might be someone um, who's only been treated with one class of medication and not tried on things that might be a little more sophisticated than uh, would be used in the, a general practitioner's office or an internist's office. Um, and with this type of, of, of assessment and, and careful sort of laying out of treatment options, whether it is 
repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation where we use a magnet to um, stimulate the brain, or whether it is ketamine infusions where we're giving sub-anesthetic doses of ketamine, which for certain individuals is a very effective treatment of depression and also is a very effective um, treatment for acute suicidality, or whether it is for those people that truly have years and years of refractory um, responses to depression, deep brain stimulation, where with our neurosurgical colleagues, we're actually identifying specific pathways and tracks in the brain and then implanting an electrode and a stimulator. There are all these options available, but that's why a a specialized treatment-resistant depression program can be very, very valuable for people in our community. When it comes to getting reimbursement for care, if you will, is this covered kind of question comes to mind? Can I get access to this sort of treatment and have my insurance company pay for it, or is that kind of in a gray area for for the insurance and Medicare type payers? More times than not, we can work with the patient and get these types of interventions paid for. We really can. How about, because we're we're really kind of evenly split, we have definitely a lot of healthcare folks that, that are checking out our show, particularly since we've been partnering with MAG, um, and then obviously some of our lay folks that just have an interest in healthcare topics. And so when it comes to being able to speak to both the patient and potential referral sources, if you will, the people that are in primary care offices or maybe my cardiologist, whatever, that are doing what you were talking about. They're assessing the patient and identifying whether or not they're dealing with depression when it comes to treating it. Yes. What would your advice be? At what point would it make sense to go to a psychiatrist for medical management of my, what seems to be depression? Mm-hmm. Versus saying, hey, you know what, I'm going to send you over to Dr. Rappaport and have him take a look at you and and let him decide what the best course of action would be. I guess my question would be, when should my primary care doctor or that individual go ahead or refrain from saying, here, sure, I'll write you a script for name a a well-known antidepressant medication. It seems that, in my opinion, based on the the complexities of this disease, uh, the way that your body would respond to a particular medication and so forth, that you really don't want to be just kind of playing roulette with the medications that you're trying just because a lot of people know about it. It may not mean it's the best thing for what we're dealing with here. So when should I get that from you versus just who I'm standing in front of? Sure. There, as you can tell, I'm fumbling with this answer for a minute. And, there, and I'm it's doing a hard hitting question. Yeah, you know it is. But <laughs> you know what? The reason why I am is the following. Um, the really exciting thing that's going on with medicine today is something called integrated care. Mm-hmm. And what that is, is co-locating some type of mental health professional in primary care settings or in large um, group care offices. Now, that person doesn't have to be a psychiatrist. And in fact, we would suggest first line, it could be either a psychiatric social worker or a psychologist. And frequently the the combination of having somebody who's um, psychiatrically and psychologically trained working with a primary care physician is, is probably for our society and for people in general, the best, the best first line treatment. Okay. And for a couple of reasons. One is we know anytime you have to make a referral 
of a patient to uh, another provider, the likelihood of that person getting to the other provider is a lot less. Right. And then when you talk about the psychiatry provider, boy, is that scary. Mm -hmm. So for a lot of our patients, it's still very scary and very stigmatizing. So when you can have integrated care, when you can have um, a psychologist or a psychiatric social worker embedded in the practice of the primary care physicians, that's really the best of all possible worlds. And in the best of these integrated care models, the other component of it is that the psychiatrist serves as the consultant. The psychiatrist, either in a weekly face-to-face -face, um, meeting with the um, embedded psychiatric social worker or psychologist, plus the, the primary care physicians, or um, via um, telepsychiatry, meets with them and, and discusses cases. So I think it's absolutely fine if for somebody who has a new onset depression, first time it's ever occurred, for the, the pharmacology of that, if the patient decides with the doctor that that's the way to go, to start with one of the very safe and easy to use medications like a, an SSRI or an SNRI, and that's absolutely fine. And if when you're measuring results and if over time that person doesn't get better, then it's the time to, to think about sending that person to a specialist. Initial treatment inside the integrated care model, it's absolutely fine for the pharmacology to be done by the primary care physician with the psychiatrist available for uh, a consultation and also with psychotherapy available right in there by the, the psychiatric social worker or the psychologist. And then we should be seeing the more complicated cases. When it comes to determining is this medication, if medication is the approach that we're going to choose, what do you think is a practical and reasonable period of time to assess its effectiveness before we think, mm, maybe we either make a change to the type of medication or that we you know, engage the higher level specialists such as yourself, those types of things? How, how long should we watch and wait? We should, in general, see a response for somebody within the first six weeks. Okay. Now, they're not going to be cured. They're not going to be 100% better. But within the first six weeks, um, let's say they came in. And, and what I tend to do is ask people on a 1 to 10 scale, with 10 being the worst and 1 being the best, how bad their depression is or how bad their, their lack of, of pleasure is mm -hmm. or how bad whatever they think is worse, sleep disturbance. And what I'm looking for is if somebody came in with an 8 out of 10 in terms of severity of depression, I'd want that to see that depression at about a 5 out of 10 um, six weeks later, if not lower. Okay. And, and when it comes to, you, you talked earlier about the fact that Emory is one of those institutions that's committed to providing research around these subjects and trying to find different solutions for patients. Um, 
when it comes to trying to determine, am I somebody that might be good for a study? How do I learn? I know if you look in the oncology world, they have, uh, they have the Georgia Cancer Info Online, for example, where I can find all the studies that, that are going on in the region that, that I might be able to possibly qualify for. Is there similar resources for somebody that's dealing maybe with a, an emotional or, or a behavioral type problem such as depression here? Sure. Um, one, if you look on our website, we have all of our, our research listed on the website itself, on the psychiatry website. But um, also, if somebody wanted clinical care, there we have numbers for treatment-resistant depression, our screeners there. Um, there are lots of opportunities available for care for people. Well, I know I've gotten you in the middle of the day and, and our time goes by quickly. Before I let you get back, do you have any final thoughts to either uh, a physician colleague that might be listening, that might be one of those folks that identifies these people or someone in the community that maybe thinks, geez, that maybe that's what we're dealing with. Any final thoughts? Well, yeah. Um, and to, I'm going to give a final thought to the physician colleague in two ways. One is please do ask your patients about depression and anxiety because it's there. But also, as a colleague, remember that you are subject to depression and anxiety. And remember that there's a higher incidence of depression in physicians than in the normal population. And it's not a sign of of weakness. If you have a brain disorder where you need help, just like you'd get help for high blood pressure or diabetes. Don't try and tough it out. Get help for depression. We can help you get better, whether you're the physician or whether you're a layperson. We can help you. There is hope. One of the terrible things about depression is it's like wearing a horse wearing blinders. You don't see the entire world around you. You only see what's right in in front of you. And many times that seems as if you're trapped. You don't have to be. Mm -hmm. Get help. It's a treatable brain disease. It's not your fault. And the website that you were suggesting, that the the psychiatry.emory.edu, the good place for them to go and start? Yes. If you've not done so already, make sure you go by mag.org, I believe it is, for the Medical Association of Georgia. They've got all of our previous episodes up there, uh, as well as out here on the Top Docs Radio show page. And you can check out some of the previous guests that we've had there. Make sure you go to the upper left-hand corner and click on the Apple logo. That'll take you to the Top Docs Radio Show podcast on iTunes. And you can subscribe to us. That way, each week, the new episode is downloaded straight to your device, ready for you to check it out whenever it's convenient for you. And we do hope you turn around and click share as you check out today's podcast because you might just be putting some information out there on LinkedIn to your network or Facebook, wherever you're going to be sharing it, that might really make a difference for somebody that you care about. So we'll say thank you very much to the people that do put this out for us and help us get the word out about this important topic. And Dr. Rappaport, I really appreciate you making time to join me in the studio to talk about it. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. It's a pleasure to 
talk with you. Well, we look forward to having more folks join us from Emory. We've had a, a couple of the specialists join us over time on the show. So we always look forward to having experts from the community like yourself join us in the studio. And thank you to the people at Medical Association of Georgia. They've been a great team. It's been a fun partnership. And I've really been pleased to get a chance to have some of these conversations and share the information that we have over the past couple of years we've been working together. So looking forward to uh, a, a pleasant 2017 with more topics like this. Hope you all have a great new year and we'll see you next year. <laughs> see you then. 